Hey everyone, on today's podcast, Nikki and I speak about some sensitive topics regarding overcrowded oceans, rivers, and mountains. COVID has put more people in the outdoors than ever before. We speculate on how we as outdoorsmen can embrace these new norms and still be okay with this overcrowding of places we love and cherish. Next month, we'll be heading to the Keys, gathering more stories from icons and under-the-radar stellars of our sport. You won't want to miss this next set of podcasts we have lined up. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way, so I double-lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. <laughs> There's something fishy going on here. All right, um, today we're going to visit about a couple of things. You know, we don't have a guest. It's just you and I recapping this last tarpon season, maybe this hunting season. Uh, we're going to take a small break before we go to the Keys in November. We're going to go compile a number of interviews with some Hall of Famers and iconic fishermen and anglers down there that are going to be, I promise you, very riveting. Um, so, but before we get into the November and those interviews you know we've been doing this now for almost a year we've had some incredible guests on this show real riveting guests and the audience has really been compelled to hear these stories uh, of these icons and the thing is the way i feel about it and i think i can you know represent you when i say this is that what we are capturing is a piece of history and these stories are going to go away when these people die if they've not been documented and i think our goal is to collect these fishing stories from around this country, the Northeast at some point, California, steelhead fishermen, and really get, you know, what a big part of this country, the historical perspective of who all these guys are and what they've seen out there in and on these waters. Right. I mean, that was the vision from the start. Right. Was to gather these these stories about, you know, Flip and, and Steve and, and Stu and what they saw in the 70s or 60s or 80s, Flamingo and the Everglades and the Keys and Homosassa. We wanted to get those stories before they go away. I mean, sure, some of those stories are documented, but to, you know, sit down, you know, face to face with someone and see their emotion and, and the way they tell that um, that record story or the one that got away, it's just, you know, that's that, that means the world to us. And I, I think we've, you know, we've done a great job at, at, at getting those stories out of that um, old timer, and we've had a fun time doing it. 
Well, I look forward to some of these guys that we're going to be uh, bringing to the Millhouse podcast in November. Um, but before we go there, we had an interview with Lonnie Venata, a bow hunter, recently. And two, besides the, the fishing stories, we're going to capture some stories that are so compelling. we got to have that guest on the show, like Neil Beidelman, who was a guide on Everest right. in 96. You know, that infamous night where 12 people, died, or actually eight people died that night, and five from those two parties. But anyway, um, I was saying recently about I feel sorry for people who have never had a chance to have seen and done a lot of things that we've been so fortunate and blessed to do. Uh, and in the same breath, I made mention that it's frustrating to see how many people are on these rivers and the oceans that we fish and wherever we go, the woods are inundated with people. And so <clears throat> if you don't mind, I don't have COVID, I have asthma, but <laughs> I do cough yeah, right. periodically. But anyway, uh, Jeremy Damgard wrote this uh, after the Lonnie's podcast and after the statement I made. He said, as someone who owns several copies of A Passion for Tarpon, a book I wrote, uh, he says, yes, I own several. And thank you, uh, Jeremy, for purchasing those. And hopefully they helped you catch a bunch of big fish. And someone who has respect for you in regards to your knowledge of fishing, hunting, and the outdoors, I'm pleading with you to explain to me how in the same breath you can feel terrible for people who have never felt the same way you and Nikki have or seen what you have seen and then complain when those same people wish to see and experience what you've seen and experienced. Who gets to hunt the same elk or see the same elk or see the same mountains and hike the same trails as you, Nikki, and your guests? Ten people? Five people? A hundred people? Or is this just frustration? I'm asking respectfully because I'm exhausted from the tired old argument that this mountain, my aspen, these woods, this flat, this stream, etc., etc., belong to me and you can't have it because you don't live here. You haven't put in the work, etc., etc. No, as Jeremy says, no, we don't live there. We can't put in the work. We can't afford it because we're too damn busy living and dying and working and dreaming about being there. And then when we do get there, we're confronted with the attitude that we do not belong there. This, of course, after being told that we should see what you've seen. Uh, I responded to Jeremy with this. Uh, hey, Jeremy, I'm guilty and I'm sorry. Of course, we've been promoting the great outdoors. And yes, I agree, we've wrongly taken ownership of this country's paradise. I'll forever try to do my best in not being aggravated when I see too many people in places I've never seen them before, even as painful as it is, I will try to go deeper, suffer more, enjoy that pain, and try to be more compassionate to those that are seeking refuge from the overpopulation of the world. That's the biggest problem. Thank you for your grounding sentiments. I think that's very important. I, I, I love how he wrote that. I do too. And, and I do feel guilty about that. Right. So... You know, how do we approach his question, uh, and which is, and I'm going to maybe give a little bit of reference as to why I'm frustrated. I started, I grew up here in Aspen in 1960. I was time flies when I was 12. Before a river runs through it, there was nobody on these rivers. And they were essentially in that same old adage, there were my rivers. Um Sometimes we do take ownership of a spot because we've had such great, wonderful experiences with those spots. And I want to make reference to this, going deeper, okay? How do you go deeper on the frying pan river when it's 18 miles long? You can't. You can't. Yeah. So how do we tread lightly 
How do we engage and still be fulfilled with fly fishing rivers that are extremely overpopulated? How do we go into the Keys and, and fish for tarpon when, two, there are so many boats down there? You go into a certain spot, a certain basin that you once held three boats, and it was crowded with three, now have nine. Um, certain areas where a basin might have 10 boats in it, you're not going to be able to catch a fish because these fish are ping-ponging off of each other. So, right. Jeremy, you know, and everybody else, when I talk about the overpopulation of the world and how frustrating it is, it's like, okay, I get it, and I am wrong, and I am guilty. So now the question is, how do we embrace everyone else being able to be there? And this year with the COVID, a lot was, of people— I was going to say there was an asterisk there in this year. Right. Because everyone wanted to be outdoors. and They're selling more boats than ever. Trevor Loose from Hardy is now 800% above last year's sales. Everybody is gravitating to the west, to the rivers, and to the oceans. So where do we go from here? I don't think there's a, yeah, it's, it's tough. I don't know if there's a correct answer, but do you issue permits and tags and, you know, go to the preference point system where they have it here in Colorado, elk hunting? I, I don't know. Really well, don't. I just know that this, this year was great because there was nobody down there. <clears throat> we got into the Keys and it was really great. You can look from the east to the west, wherever you looked, there were no boats. The fish were happy. The fish were there early this year because the weather was so good and warm in February and March. I think the fish got there early and they kind of left early. But we'll never see that again, I don't think. Um, the keys are now open. I can't imagine them shutting that down. So what I think we can do is, let's just say you want to have quality fishing on the frying pan. I think you get there early before anybody else, and you may hold a spot just like you hold a, a spot on the ocean waiting for the tide to marinate, if you will. And you wait for that hatch, and then you, you hold that spot. I think this is what's going to happen in the future. Yeah, but that doesn't solve the problem of the crowds on the river. No, it does not. But it allows you to have your spot and still have – you're not going to be able to move very far because there's so many people. But if you want to fish a certain hatch, you have to get there early, hold your spot, smoke a cigar, wait till you see a few flies starting to fly around, and then approach that, that spot, fish it, and then go home. And or if you want to be away from people, fish really early, leave early, or fish really late in the day. And or two, like in the Keys, if you want to tarpon fish. We put in early. You know, not many people are going to put in at six in the morning and fish till seven o'clock at night. So we fish all day, early and late. But let's just say you want to fish uh, and have spots available. You put in at noon and fish till seven. A lot of guides are off the water at three thirty in the afternoon. They leave spots open up. Some maybe leave a little bit later. But there too, you're going to be able to find you know a place to fish. Right. Yeah, but that brings up another argument. A lot of those, a lot of those guides don't think that we should be out there, you know, fishing a flat, fishing, taking up a spot where the working guides could be able to go there if we weren't there. Well, you know, with us that, as do-it-yourselfers, they just don't, you know, they frown upon that. Well, the thing is, they don't own the ocean. I agree. They say that's their office. I get that they're making a living there, 
but we pay our taxes. That is public water, and we have just as much of a right to be there as they do. And when are you? When have you paid your dues? And is that quote unquote paying your dues entitling you to be in that spot? When are those dues paid, and you're okay to be there? Because I'm not a resident of the Florida Keys. So even though I've been fishing down there for 35 years, I'm an intruder. People come into Aspen all summer and they're, you know, fishing the local waters here. You know, who am I to say you can't, you know, these are our waters. It's too crowded. You shouldn't be where we are as far as the guides are, are speaking. And you and I know where a lot of the guides like to fish. We just stay away from their spots. You know, you talk about you know, certain guides taking ownership of spots, you know, like David Mangum, you know, quotes, we're quoting him. I don't own that spot, but I, I own the intellectual property of that spot. Well, if that were the case, Steve Huff can go to almost every spot in the lower keys and tell everybody to get the hell out of here. That's right. my spot. Yeah. Beat it. The intellectual property of a spot. Let's just take, uh, for an example, somebody who designed like Steve Huff. Okay, he invented the Huffenagle, which is a combination of a bimini twist and a figure eight, um, and combining you know light tackle to heavy tackle. He owns the intellectual property of that knot. So does that mean no one else can use that knot? You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. I mean, intellectual property. Somebody's somebody's always in the keys. Has I mean for a long, long time, somebody's been fishing all those spots. So how do we, as daily fishermen, people who like to just go out, father and son, you and I, or somebody who's got their own new boat, go into an area like the Keys where it's very sensitive and be able to fish comfortably? Right. Yeah, I mean, just say you're a new guide and you're working your tail off to you know, try to find your own spots to not get in anyone else's way, and you find this great edge. It doesn't have to be in the Keys because a lot of those spots in the Keys everyone knows about, but... And you fish it, and it's productive, and you're fishing it every day, every day for a year. Shortly, a guy runs by and sees you fishing the spot, right? He keeps running by. Next week, the spot's open, and he wants to try it. Is that all right for him to pull in there and try that spot, or is that unethical? I think it's totally fine. Don't you? I do, but... I know a lot of people probably won't say that's ethical. Well, you know what's interesting too? I mean, just recently, if you, so when you find something on your own, and I, I keep, you know, periodically go back to Steve Huff because he's the god of guides and he's always set, kind of set the standard for how we should behave down there. And if you're a guide or somebody in your own boat and you're not really sure what you should be doing, you sometimes have to take yourself out of the equation and think about maybe what would Steve Huff do and then do that. And a prime example is we were fishing uh, over by Flamingo one time. I was with um, Timmy Klein. T Timmy Klein. We get cut off and we know who it is, <laughs> right? Yeah, I know who it is. And we, we call that individual that evening. I called him. I said, dude, what are you, what are you doing? We're, we're sliding down an edge. If you want to fish that edge, you can slide in behind me. But if I'm pulling down an edge, you can't come in in front of me because that's, that's where I'm headed. 
unless you want to come in two miles ahead of me or whatever. But typically, you cut in behind somebody and follow them. Right. So this guy, I called him up, and I said, what were you doing cutting us off today? He said, oh, I didn't know that was you guys. I thought it was my buddy Billy, my next-door neighbor. And my question to him is, so it's okay to cut your buddy Billy off? No, it's not okay. So a lot of times when we want to do something, instinctually we know it's bad. And we've got to fight that. We've got to go with what we know is right and not allow ourselves to get to be greedy. I think also, too, it's it's how you fish and how you fish that spot. So, you know, whether it's a stakeout spot or a polling spot, say it's a polling spot and there's a do-it-yourself or one guy on the bow with a trolling motor and the trolling motor is on anchor. He's just staked there, right? And people are behind him, you know, fishing the spot ethically where you pull down the basin and he's right in the way and he's not moving. I think those guys give us a bad rep because we're do-it-yourselfers, but I think we do it, you know, I, I think we do it the correct way where we try, we try to by pulling our boat, um, not staking out, kind of we, we very rarely be on anchor. And, you know, I think there's, I think there's ways to, to fish a spot and ways not to fish a spot. And when those people are staked out, kind of controlling that spot it gives it it just looks bad for everybody well what what he, what Nikki's referring to is that there's one basin in the keys I won't make mention of it a lot of people know where it is once we start talking about it but you know typically you float from you know the east to the west and you drift down through there you pull down through there it's not a stakeout so right. now the new generation guys these creek mouths will come out and they'll stake out at the creek mouth and hold and they'll stay there. So those spots that have been traditionally fished a certain way are being changed by people who don't know the nuances of a spot. And that's what's aggravating, I think, to a lot of the guides is that they're out there every day, and all of a sudden they, they're getting cut off by people who don't really understand the dynamics of a certain spot. Sure. And if you're a new fisherman, I think it's really important to try to figure out the way to tread lightly. And, and watch other people and slide in there and try to emulate, you know, what everybody else is doing. But also, too, here's what's really interesting is that a lot of people want to know where you caught a fish the day before so they can go there the next day. And a lot of people feel like if you tell me where you caught that, that fish, that means I can't go there tomorrow. So don't tell me where you caught that fish because that means I have the entire ocean free to myself. I have free reign. And if by chance that guy sees me in that spot where he caught or hooked 12 fish the day before, but he didn't tell me where he was, and all of a sudden I end up in the seaplane basin, he sees me in the seaplane basin. That's free game. That's free game because yeah. he didn't tell me where right. he caught those spot, you know, caught those fish or hooked those fish. Right. And and two, I think you know, as as guides and you know, do it do it by yourself when you find a new spot that has fish. It's so rewarding. It's like a little pocket of gold you just found so what if you're running by what if you and i are running by a spot a really good you know a really good edge that's a very productive and it's a very well-known spot and it's open and we take it a lot of those guides will say if you if you're do-it-yourselfers there's many spots just down the edge from there don't take the a spot 
Take the B spot, take the C spot, let the working guides take the A spot. How do you feel about that if, if it's open? If it's open, I'm going in. Why not? But if I know one of my friends or a persnickety type of a guy who's going to get all huffy if I'm in there, and it's going to be hard not to be able to be have people upset with you periodically, that's just the nature of the beast. There's only so much ocean. There's only so many rivers that we can fish, and everybody wants to be there. So at some point in time, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna bother somebody, right? Me myself, I'm gonna try not to be bothered anymore. I'm gonna try to like go elsewhere, and not try to pinch somebody. I used to think I can make this work. I can fit in there. We're motoring in, and you say, "No, nah, it's, it's too yeah, tight. We no. can't do it." So we turn around, we go out. You're a little aggressive, <laughs> <laughs> maybe initially, but. This is how I think, you know, we have to move forward. And, and again, let's just say the high country out here. We had, I was hosting Charlie Gibson, who used to host Good Morning America. They came into Aspen and we were in the high country, uh, backcountry skiing. And I told Charlie, I said, just listen for a second. Silence is very loud if you allow it to be heard. And most people don't like silence. They're on their phone. They're consumed with their phone or friends or conversation. And when you're in the high country hiking, what really is bothersome is noise pollution. When you hear people speaking very loudly, you know, instead of speaking softly, you know, tread lightly, if you will. So I know that when we're up there, we're hard, we hardly ever say a word. So you can pass through the high country. You can walk by people and we're not bothering them they're not bothering you but i think just being conscious of the great outdoors and where you are and how to fit in among so many people is imperative from this point forward right and and don't play the numbers game like steve said you catch one of these magnificent fish a day that's a great day you know don't keep up with the joneses about numbers and social media and you catch one fish it's a great day and if you don't it's still a great day. I think that's the, you know, the mindset we got to go, you know, forward with. Well, it's it's interesting in, in, in that, you know, the game is, you know, the techniques and tactics and lines and hooks have improved to the point that we can really go out and mohawk the fish. I sometimes. Mean, sometimes. Sometimes. Sometimes not. And, you know, sometimes, you know, towards the end of the season, a lot of the guys like Dustin, he's, you know, they feel sorry for the fish. Right. But yet that's their livelihood. They got to go catch as many as they can. Um, the resource, whether it be public land, elk hunting, tarpon fishing, bone fishing. I mean, you just take a look at the bone fishing, you know, in the Keys now and how it is starting to make, you know, a comeback. But it's so important to think about the resource and the animals um, and how we can best help them. And the problem is the elk herd in, in Aspen and the Vail Valley is down like 50%. And you can attribute to it to a number of different reasons. But two, the fishing in the Keys in certain areas in Florida, we've got bad water. You know, the habitat has been, you know, <laughs> impaired how do we go forward and try to protect 
what we have and that we most cherish. Right. But you don't think there's a lack of tarpon, do you? No, I don't. In your 35 years of fishing for them, you don't think there's a lack of tarpon? No. Like, I, it's like I just, Sandy says. I just they think they're deeper. swimming in deeper water. Right. You know, the boat pressure pushes them, you know, in, into deeper water. They're survivors. You know, they can, uh, they breathe air. So even in bad water, they can uh, be, they can have a sustainable existence and they move, they travel, you know, not nearly as far as, or much further than, than bonefish. You know, a bonefish habitat is really detrimental to the bonefish. But, um, you know, it's kind of interesting in that, I mean, this whole statement that Jeremy made um, is really a, it's a red flag for all of us um, on the ocean and in the mountains. Um, and I just think that we all have to have a different perspective and not be so greedy with what we do. I agree. And I'm glad he, he made that point because I think it's, I think it's very important. And he's, he's correct. You're a hypocrite. <laughs> but also, too, I want to talk about the new generation of angler um, fishing straight 30 and 40 and 50 pounds straight from their fly line to their hook. How do you feel about that? I think it's horrible. And um, if you, as an angler, were to tie... Let's just say you have three rods. You have 20-pound test, you have 40-pound test, and you have a 100-pound test monofilament. You tie all those to a scale, and you stand back, and you pull as hard as you can. The numbers are going to be about the same. The same, yeah. And it's so, probably not going to be above 16 pounds. Probably not. Not unless you lock up the reel and, and pull straight back. But if you're fishing ethically, or not ethically, because, you know, whatever that means, but if you fish traditionally pulling with the butt of the rod, you can only pull so hard. And that's why Tom Evans and a lot of the great fishermen consider a 20-pound test monofilament rope, because you can pull as hard as you can. You're not right. going to break it. Here's a, a lot of people don't understand that in world record chasing for, with fly rods, the confines of what's legal fly fishing, world record catching, is from 20-pound test monofilament down. Anything over 20 is not allowed. So like a lot of people like Sandy Huff or Sandy Moret consider, and Steve Huff too, if you're not fishing IGFA compliant, you're not fly fishing. Well, you're throwing a fly, you're throwing a fly rod, you're fly fishing. The problem with fishing straight 40 in I mean, we always, we, you and I were in El Pescador. They had straight 80-pound monofilament from the fly line to the hook. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it takes all the, the angling skill out. Well, it's also, too, it's very dangerous, and you're not teaching your client how to become an angler. Right. Here's the problem that I see, you know, like down in the Keys in certain areas like Bahia Honda. Now you get a hammerhead up in your fish, and you got 40-pound test. You can't break that fish off. That fish, that shark is going to eat your fish. But if you have 20 or 16 or less, you know, not many people fish less than 16, you're going to be able to straighten your rod and break that fish, that tarpon off, and he's not going to get killed. He's not going to, he's not going to get shark bit. Two, let's just say you're in Christmas Island and or wherever else you may be, and you've got really heavy monofilament, and you hook a real big fish. Let's just say you're, you're marlin fishing, 
and you get hooked up, you tease up a 400-pound fish, and you got straight 40 or 60-pound monofilament to the bite tippet, and you're clearing 60 feet of fly line, and all of a sudden you get your finger gets wrapped with a fly line. Yeah. You're, you're going to lose a finger. And I think it's very dangerous to have, and I think it's very... Um, I think you're liable if you're a lodge, such as some of the lodges out there that fish for, you know, tarpon and, and uh, giant trevally, et cetera, and you allow clients to fish with heavy monofilament. It's that, irresponsible. Somebody's going to get hurt. Right. Um, Plus. Now, now, for me, I don't care if somebody fishes outside of the IGFA, you know, compliant stuff, 20-pound and shock tippet. But... If you're world record fishing and or fishing in tournaments, your bite tip has got to be correct. Your um, your your line test has got to be 15 inches or longer. You know, it's like the rules of golf. Anybody can shoot par if you don't play by the rules. Right. So we have a standard in fly fishermen by which we have to be compliant to. And I just think more importantly, I don't care about a 12-inch bite tip. But for me personally, when I go to a lodge, I travel around the world and see these guys fishing straight 40, 30 and 40, you know, you can get away with a lot of mistakes, but you're not teaching your client how to be a better angler. Right. Yeah. And plus two, if it comes up, if you're clearing your line and it comes up in a knot, you could rip all the eye guides off your rod if you're marlin fishing. Right. Now, look, I've got to admit, I fish outside of uh, IGFA compliant monofilament when I'm shark fishing, when I'm testing product. So if I've got new rods from Hardy and we go and, and, and we chum up a bunch of black tip spinner sharks, if you have 20-pound test for your class tippet, there's no way you're going to be able to catch that fish because the fish jumps, it spins up your leader, and when he lands, he, the, he straightens out to, to burst ahead, and it's going to pop 20 immediately. So typically what we'll do is, is have a big, you know, big a chunk of, of steel. We'll fish like 40-pound 40, 40 test. And then that goes to your butt section. And when I make my cast of that shark, I make sure I throw all my fly line. So I'll fish less, like say 40 or 50 feet. So when I get tight to that fish, there's no, there's no fly line to clean or to clear. I get tight and it's on the reel. But I'm very conscious of getting wrapped with that fly line. So I am guilty of sometimes using heavier monofilament, but that's when I'm trying to test rods. We use heavy drags heavy monofilament because if the rods and reels can handle that kind of pressure and that kind of resistance, then they're going to be, you know, they're going to be fine for, you know, the confines of, of fishing 20, 20 pound test and less. But when we're down in the Keys tarpon fishing, we don't fish IGFA legal. We fish 16 pound test um, class, but we don't fish a 12 well, inch shock. We don't, we don't totally play by the rules no no I, I agree but at least our our class tippet right is under is 20 pound test or less so that justifies it doesn't justify it because look i don't want to <coughs> spend a bunch of time you know having to change leaders or retie leaders out there and i and that's no excuse for not fishing igfa obviously if we're going if we're in a tournament or if you're ever to, and I once did record fish a little bit, sure, you know, you have a 12-inch shock tippet. But if you're getting a lot of bites and you have, say, you know, a little bit of longer bite tippet and you're using 40-pound test, you can just clip off where that monofilament got chewed and retie your fly on. 
And so now you can, if you're testing flies, you can change flies very quickly by just retying flies on. But am I breaking the rules? Yeah. Yeah, of course I am. So is breaking one rule worse than breaking another, or is it all equal? That's a good question. I mean, in your opinion, I mean, is fishing 30 pound okay? For me, no. Is no. fishing a two foot shock tippet? Okay. Yes. <laughs> but but I'm that that was my question to you. But yeah, it, it is. I think it's it's tough. I know. And you talk to you talk to like a you know Nathaniel Linville. He's gonna say you got to play by the rules, and right. I totally get it. I get it, and I understand it. Um, I think the biggest issue for me is fishing twenty pound test or less. Not only is it safer, but you learn how to become a better angler. I don't think a two foot or a twelve inch shock tippet versus a sixteen or a twenty inch shock tippet is going to make any difference at all in your ability to, you know, it's not going to make the difference in, in in improving or making you get away with something that you shouldn't be able to get away with, like twenty pound test and versus thirty. So when was the first first year you fished the keys? I would say probably almost 35 years ago. And it was with Harry. Right in there, Harry. So here you have like Harry Spear, you know. I don't know if I mentioned this before, but he left the Keys a long time ago because there were too many people. Steve Huff left. He went to fish the Everglades, and, and Harry Spear went and started building boats. Um, and I know that when Steve has to go to Key West to permit fish, he just he's, he, he cringes at the thought of it. But did Harry move up to the panhandle and get out of the Keys because of pressure? I think he, too, or was he just I think it was out? a combination. We're going to do an interview with him at some point, but I think it was a combination of too many people and being burned out. I mean, when you do something as hard as, as these guys worked and pulled and fought to win tournaments and being competitive as long as they, they, that they were, and now all of a sudden your fishery is starting to be depleted, Everybody's on top of each other. I get it, but I can't. Imo I can't imagine ever not tarpon fishing. Right. I think it's really important that we have to wrap our arms around that that whole adage. These are the good old days. You know, I've been saying that for a while. And at some point, if you're not having any fun, you figure out something else to do. But I cannot uh, not imagine ever not tarpon fishing again. And um, as much as I want to be comfortable and okay with a lot of people down there where, where we fish, I'm not going to be comfortable in 15 and 20 years when it's really going to be hard to find your spot and have fresh fish. But we are intruders. We're all intruders. But who, who's okay to be there? Who's okay? The locals, the local guides. Yes, that's their office, but I pay taxes. I agree. It's like saying to somebody they can't hunt public land out here in Aspen. Now, if you if you have preference points and you draw a unit, there's going to be less people hunting in that area. But who's welcome and who's not into public land hunting and and on public oceans and rivers? Yeah, it's for everybody. Fish? Yep, I know. I agree. I'm just saying some guys will bring that 
that case up. Yes, this it's their office. I get it. And it's got to be very frustrating for them when they see us coming around the bend. You know, you know, if you take a look at at, at my footprint in the Keys, being there since nineteen, being there for thirty thirty five years, when I was tournament fishing, I was fishing sixty days a year. For fifty days, we rent a house down there. You know, let's just say when I was for those sixty days, I'm spending probably almost maybe a thousand dollars a day with hotel rooms. Guides, 60 days a year times 30, 35 years. I've put a lot of money into that economy. I've put a lot of money into guides' pockets. So that justifies boat, you boat coming companies. down. Well, look, if, I, if I'm not going to, how, how are they going to exist without people like myself? How do hotels exist without people coming into town? And, but we don't, we don't book guides anymore. Or we do sometimes, but we're not constantly fishing with guides, putting money in their pocket. Right, not constantly, but we still rent houses and we still, right. you know, have, you know, buy boats, et cetera. I mean, the economy needs us. So, so you're saying only people that fish with guides are okay to be able to be fishing down there? No, I'm, I'm, no, I'm raising that question. It's an argument, but no, I don't yeah. think so. No, the the economy, you know. Look, the Keys is a $450 million industry in the fishing, fishing alone. Well, you said it's it's still the good old days, and I agree. I, I don't know anything different. I've only been doing this for 15 years. No, yeah, 13 years or something. But what was it like? What were the good old days like with Harry Spear when he first started coming down to the Keys? Just less people. You know, the fish were fresher. I mean, was there... Just no boats in the backcountry? Yeah, I mean, you could pretty much go almost wherever you wanted to go. If you were going to go into, like, head for an example, you know, a crowded day, you might see, you know, three boats. You know, if you go into the back, you know, you run around, you can go fish, you know, certain areas and there'd be nobody there. Now you have to kind of, you know, pick your way around. But... And using big flies. Well, Six yeah. inch flies. I mean, it was and- funny because I remember fishing, you know, the, uh, a certain beach down there, and we'd throw a six inch black fly and throw it twenty feet, thirty feet out ahead of a of a, a string of fish and just start sliding it, and these fish would just jump out of their sockets to get over and stick their head two feet out of the water to eat that fly. And now we're fishing inch palola worms at forty pound shock. It, it, it a bite is, yeah, he's right. got it. It's a sip. Yeah. I mean, once in a while you'll see a fish stick his head out of the water, but not very often. Right. I mean, the game has changed, you know, so radically. You know, 90% of of your fishing is is with a worm fly, double-handed stripping with a clear tip fly line, or maybe a fully, you know, an all-clear fly line, little number 1-0 hooks. Did Harry yell at you when you were first getting started? No, only when I made some mistakes in, in the first tournament I ever fished in. What happened? It was really interesting in that I was so nervous when I finally started to to think about fishing in the Gold Cup because Harry was speaking about the Gold Cup. And we were in this one area one day, and we caught like four fish over 100 pounds. And we get back to the house, and his wife Kimberly asked him how was it. 
And Harry said, well, we had a Gold Cup day. And I asked Harry, I said, what was a Gold Cup day? And he started to explain it, you know, about the weight fish and the Gold Cup is the biggest tarpon tournament in the world. And so now he's got, you know, I'm starting to think about weight fish and what weight fish means. And eventually, seven years later, he was my mentor for like seven years. And seven years later, you know, we decided to fish the Gold Cup together. And the very first cast I made in the Gold Cup, I hooked probably one of the biggest fish of my life. We were in this thing's laying there and I throw the fly in there and this fish eats it and it's just enormous. And I, I, you know, it's all relative. Back then I thought I could, I knew how to pull on fish. So I'm pulling and pulling and pulling. I think I'm really like, you didn't know anything. I didn't know Dick. And an hour and 20 minutes later, my tongue is like stuck to the roof of my mouth. I'm going, Harry, I need some water, you know? And Harry said, catch me this damn fish and I'll give you, I'll give you some water, (laughs) you know? So, he was like, you know, really like aggressive. Let's catch this fish. I don't care. You know, you can you can bleed later. You can cry later. But let's catch this fish. And, we, and then we go into <laughs> My hook broke. And I was so relieved that my hook broke when we lost that big fish because I, I was so worried that I was going to break him off. And then I would have really gotten yelled at. But when my hook broke, I was off the hook, you know. So this is before you, you switched spots. Yeah. I mean, this is the first fish. Yes. Broke the hook. We go into we catch a fish and Harry's about, he has his hands on it. The fish slides, you know, like a foot or two forward. And I go to back the fish up and I, and I break the fish off and Harry stands Classic. up. Classic. You still do that. <laughs> and, Every time. <laughs> no, I don't. And, and Harry stands up and throws the gaff almost through the, the bottom of the boat and yells at me, what the hell did you do that for? And it's just, you know, not a word was spoken. For another hour until I got another fish on and we caught that next fish. And when once we got the strap on him and took a photograph of the fish and let him go, here he says, now I feel better, you know. It's funny. But it was all about winning. It was all about winning. And I was such a rookie. I had no experience, you know, how to, how to tournament fish. And there's a big difference between fun fishing and tournament fishing, yep. obviously. But... uh I'll never forget that first fish I hooked, and I hooked, and I was just like dying. I was scared. And you fished all the all the tournaments, the bonefish tournaments. I did all the tarpon tournaments from there there on forward. Yeah, yeah. I fished the spring fly with Harry. We got second, and then we fished the fall fly, which we won. Um, fished the gold cup, and then Harry was gone. I fished three tournaments with him. And then uh, I started fishing with Hoover, but it was just a short window of tournament fishing with Harry. But he was so he was so good. And Tim Hoover was Harry's protege. Yeah, Tim. Yeah, Harry was a real mentor to both of us. And um, so Timmy and I learned a lot, you know, together as far as you know, learning how to how to win these things. But you know, that was that was a long time ago, and the fishing has changed. But it's still really good, as you know. Right. It is the good old days. I think. If the weather cooperates. Yeah. It's a new game that we're playing now. And who knows how much longer or the impact of what COVID has has been this last year, whether or not that'll be sustained. Maybe more and more people are living in the cities and coming out west and buying property out west and the rivers are going to be inundated with people. But all I know is that I've kind of have, I have to readjust my eyeballs 
in my, my sensory panel. And I think everybody does. Right. Yeah, this is the new normal. We just have to understand what we're doing and our footprint and trying to be conscious of treading lightly and being compassionate. That's, I like it. That's my new goal. Tread lightly. All right. Tread lightly. I thought it was important to cover these topics today as they've been weighing heavily in my heart. I know many won't agree with the way I feel about some of the things we covered, but others will, and that's just the way it is. If you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again next time.